As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, one of the ongoing, there are numerous forces that are sort of conspiring, so to speak, to create shortages in various commodities. But a persistent one clearly is the ongoing war, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Right. So this is something we've spoken about, I guess, multiple times at this point. But Ukraine, of course sometimes referred to as the breadbasket of Europe or whatever cliche you want to use, a big portion of the world's grains derive from Ukraine. And I mean, there's also lots of grain growing in Russia as well, which is also off limits now. But there's an issue, obviously. Russia is blockading the country. It's hard to get that grain out, which means that there's a shortage, which means that prices are rising, which means that we've seen pressure. I mean, particularly in emerging markets, places like Egypt that actually get a lot of their food supply from Ukraine. Yeah, that's right. And so we can look here at a chart of, say, wheat futures, and the price is obviously going up. But for the American consumer, they're sort of like underlying food commodity prices they're only a modest contributor to food inflation overall. In many emerging markets, they're much more exposed directly to the price. And what's worse is not just the price, but outright shortages. So it's one thing to say, okay, the price is up. It's another thing to say, you literally cannot get the grain. You literally cannot get the wheat, but that is the risk that's being faced right now for multiple reasons, but in large part due to this war. Right. And you can imagine that would manifest itself in political pressure in a lot of places in the world. Like when people can't eat, they tend to get uh, angry, right? I I mean, rightfully so. Yeah. And so then the question is, I guess there's two questions is like, one is what is happening with uh, wheat plantings in Ukraine? But then even if plantings were to somehow be sustained amid the war, can how much of the grain can actually get out? And as you mentioned, right now, there's very little getting out. Yeah. And this sort of goes back to, I guess, the the military tension between Russia and Ukraine. But how do you actually get supplies into the country? And how do you get vital goods out? Because you still want the supply of wheat and food 
to be flowing relatively freely. And you also want Ukraine to be able to make some money, right, at a time when it actually needs money and could use that, that to buy weapons and supplies. That too. All right. So for more, we're going to be talking about some of the options to actually do this and whether there's a way for uh, the U.S. military or Western forces to play a positive role in safely getting grain out of the country. We're going to be speaking to Admiral James Stavridis, who is among other things, the 16th Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. He has personal experience in perhaps similar operations or similar situations of moving commodities around the world. He has a really deep understanding of this stuff. So, uh, Admiral, thank you so much for coming on Odd Lots. I really appreciate it. It's great to be with uh, both of you. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. So, to start, you give us your assessment of the current situation, why exporting grain uh, from Ukraine right now is so constrained? Well, I'm really struck by uh, a book I just published called To Risk It All, Nine Conflicts in the Crucible of Decision. And it's about decision making under extreme stress. And so here I think we have a pretty good example uh, of both Vladimir Putin on, if you will, the dark side of the equation and Volodymyr Zelensky on the lighter side, on our side of the equation. Both of these men are, are literally risking it all. And one of the crucial components of it is this uh, ability or not to export grain. I think you and uh, Tracy, Joe, did a nice job laying out the challenges uh, globally if it doesn't get out. So we come pretty quickly to Okay, Admiral, so how would you get the grain out? You know, I don't need to tell an odd lots audience that 95% um, of all international trade moves by sea. And uh, grain, of course, is a commodity that um, moves out in, in mass. And so the idea of trying to uh, truck it out or even train it out of Ukraine uh, just it doesn't serve. So the problem is Russia has taken their Black Sea fleet, about 40 warships, and effectively they've blockaded the entire coastline of Ukraine. They already control on the land side about 70% of that coastline on the Black Sea, but that remaining 30% has Odessa in it. And Odessa is like Los Angeles, Long Beach in the context mm. of the United States. It's the port. And um, therefore, the key is how can we, if you will, open that port? And at the moment, it's not only blockaded by Russian warships, but it's, it, it's mined in both by the Ukrainians and reportedly by the Russians. So it's a very complex maritime problem. And uh, to, to very quickly sketch it out, what we would do first is get rid of the mines. I think that's pretty obvious why you need to do that. And um, maybe some of the listeners can remember back to the 1980s when Iran blockaded the Strait of Hormuz. What did the U.S. do? Um, we got rid of the mines. We certainly have that technology. Our allies, there's a standing NATO mine sweeping task force that could be sent up in the Black Sea to do this. Uh, we got rid of the mines in the 1980s in the Arabian Gulf, and then we reflagged uh, Kuwaiti tankers as U.S. vessels, and then we escorted them, put a cruiser, a destroyer, or a frigate alongside every one of them, provided air cover, 
and simply drove them in and out and told the Iranians, in effect, don't even think about it. And um, that solution could be applied here in Ukraine. And if we don't move in that direction pretty quickly, I think the consequences of global food security uh, are quite dire. So I have a bunch of questions already, but maybe let, let me start with the most pressing one. But would an escort of ships in the manner that you just described, would that not be seen as a provocation by Russia? Um, I think it would be seen as a provocation. And we have to ask ourselves, um, is it sufficient, the, the, the need to do this, is it sufficient to accept the level of, of risk? Back to the book I just published, To Risk It All, that's exactly what I examine in the book in a series of maritime case studies is when are you willing to accept risk? And is it justified by your ability to mitigate the risk? And again, we get rid of the mines, we put escorts with all these ships, and we also demarche, we publish no TAMs. Again, I don't have to tell an odd lots audience what that is. Um, and Wait, we tell the do. Russians. Or yeah. You, or you, okay. <laughs> Both <laughs> Joe and I just looked sorry, at each other. But you don't have to tell the <laughs> okay, audience. Okay, I overestimated. <laughs> no, no, the no audience. Have, I'm sure the audience gets it. It's the hosts in this case <laughs> you need to explain it to. Okay, indeed. For our hosts, a NOTAM is a notice to mariners. Uh, okay. And it is. It, it can be published about a floating object that's become an obstruction, about newly discovered uh, underwater formations. Um, or about a missile shoot or a gun shoot that a naval warship is going to conduct. It's really just the uh, equivalent of posting public notice of operations. So we would, we would demarche the Russians. What that means is go diplomat to diplomat, and we would issue no TAMs, notice to mariners, which goes, if you will, mariner to mariner, warships to warships. The calculus then shifts over to the Russians. And, and here you just have to put yourself in the shoes of the Russians and ask yourself, um, you know, in, in the words of Clint Eastwood, are you feeling lucky today? I don't think the Russians would take a shot at a merchant ship escorted by a U.S. warship, therefore highly defended, doing a humanitarian mission, taking grain to a starving world. I just don't see Russia uh, taking that shot. You know, there is obviously an incredible amount of hesitance about committing any sort of U.S., uh, anything that would resemble sort of like direct U.S. military involvement. We're willing to send mm -hmm. uh, weapons and, of course, uh, money to Ukraine. Obviously, all of NATO well short of actually anything beyond that. But in your view, something like escorting a uh, ship through the Black Sea or uh, demining the area does not come close to that at all in your view? It, it does not as follows. Where we have drawn the red line as to U.S. involvement is on the soil of the Ukrainian land or um, Russian soil. But here we're talking about neither of those. We're talking about international waters. So uh, these ships would not be passing through Russian claimed waters at all. These would be okay. international high seas. So I think that's a crucial difference and one that um, we would certainly uh, articulate and uh, be very clear with the Russians. Look, we're not 
entering your territorial waters to conduct this mission. We're going into a Ukrainian port, uh, but through international waters and, of course, through the Ukrainian uh, territorial sea with their permission. So I, I think this passes the risk test. But I, I will also say, at this point, do we really need to worry about provoking Russia in the sense that they're the ones who have invaded this country with 200,000 troops, committed hideous war crimes, um, are refusing negotiations, and are blocking food from the rest of the world. I mean, at some point, you just have to look a bully in the eye and say, no, your behavior is unacceptable. Here's what we're going to do about it. I think we've hit that point in this particular course of action. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So one thing you mentioned um, in your writings on this topic is the idea of having to re-flag the Ukrainian carriers to something else. Can you explain why that would need to be done? I actually don't think that is a crucial step. I think it, it ups the ante for Russia. But let's face it, as, as this audience will know, um, there are many, many flags of convenience all around the, the seas of the world. Many of these grain tankers are non-Ukrainian, but it does alleviate one aspect of this, which is that um, it would be Russia conceivably could say, well, we're engaged in a special military operation. We're attacking Ukrainian targets. So we would say, OK, we'll take down the Ukrainian flag and put up really wouldn't have to be a U.S. flag. It could be Panamanian. It could be Greek. It could be any nation willing to participate. It could be any of the NATO nations. If NATO signed up to it, it would just be quite streamlined. And this was the case in the uh, Operation Earnest Will in the 1980s in the Arabian so, Sea. Um, it, it's just quicker. You can put a U.S. flag on it because the U.S. government says, yep, we'll take that ship. Um, but is that crucial? No, I don't think so. Um, so and, you were, and I don't think it would change the calculus particularly. So you were part of that uh, Operation Earnest Will in the late 1980s to get oil out of the Strait of Hormuz. Why don't you describe your uh, role in that operation and what made it successful? Um, my role was, obviously, that was many years ago. I was a very young Lieutenant Commander, I, I suppose I was in my late 20s, maybe 30, 
and I was the operations officer on an, an Aegis cruiser, USS Valley Forge. And, and as the ops boss, um, my job was to participate in all the planning that went into the operation alongside the Admiral's flag staff and my equivalents from all the other ships that were in the task force. So we would get together on the carrier and kind of sketch out the whole operation. We'd send it up the chain of command. It would get approved and come back. So step one for me was planning process very deeply involved. And then in the uh, execution phase, I was the tactical action officer on board uh, the Valley Forge, effectively the officer on watch with the firing key. So if we were overflown by Iranian combat aircraft, I had permission to shoot them down. If uh, the Iranian small boats were to attack the uh, tanker, I could engage them with our gun systems. Um, naturally, if, if a situation like that developed, the captain would come very quickly into the combat information center to make sure Lieutenant Commander Stavridis didn't do anything foolish. But as, as I described it, we would just sail right up uh, through the Strait of Hormuz and up the center of the Arabian Gulf and go up and uh, the tankers would lo load oil up at the ports in uh, Kuwait and then would turn around and take them back down. And when we got them into the Indian Ocean and out of range of uh, Iranian aircraft and Iranian warships, we were able to uh, cut them loose and off they would go. This was actually going to be my next question. So how far would a military escort for ships normally go? Do you take mm. them all the way to, well, presumably you wouldn't take them all the way to their destination, but how do you decide when they're out of, um, you know, the danger zone? Yeah, in in that particular situation, um, it was relatively easy to calculate by looking at Iranian military capability. Um, how far could their attack aircraft fly? How far did they typically operate warships? Answer in both cases, not very far. In the case of Russia, I think safely speaking, we would escort them down through the Bosphorus uh, and out the out of the Black Sea and into the Aegean Sea. I think that's where you're gonna cut them loose. Again, uh, highly unlikely in my view that Russia is going to come after commercial shipping frankly, whether it's Ukrainian flagged or not, but let's say for sake of argument, we've reflagged um, and they're flying a US flag or a Danish flag from a NATO member, very unlikely Russia's gonna go any, anywhere outside their zone of control, which is really the Northern Black Sea. More broadly today, what are the existing either US or NATO resources that either have uh, the best equipment or the best experience in working with uh, the safety and securing of commercial fleet? Um, all of the NATO navies uh, do this quite well. And most of the NATO nations have very capable Coast Guards, including obviously our own. And uh, again, an odd lots audience will know well the, uh, the, the close working relationship of the US Coast Guard to merchant shipping. Um, that's replicated by the French Coast Guard, the German Coast Guard, the Danish Coast Guard. And, and I think that um, you could certainly draw on that expertise. Finally, uh, Tracy and Joe, I would say that um, we have experience doing this uh, much more recently. Uh, during the period of time when I was Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, from 2009 to 2013, we were facing pirates. 
off the coast of East Africa. This, of course, is the time of Captain Phillips, uh, who is captured from the Maersk, Alabama, rescued uh, by a very heroic Navy operation. Frankly, one of the case studies in my book, To Risk It All, is about that operation. In that period of time, um, all of our navies work very closely with the international shipping community, if you will. And I would go every few months to London to the International Maritime Organization, which functioned as a kind of umbrella over both the uh, major shipping companies. So we had representatives there from all of them and the major navies that were part of the counter piracy. So we've got very recent experience working alongside our merchant marine colleagues. And, and frankly, so that relationship is generally pretty comfortable. So can you actually talk a little bit more about the sort of day-to-day -day relationship between uh, the military and uh, merchant carriers? And, you know, I'm thinking, Tracy, too, like about even some of these conversations that we had with uh, Zoltan Pozar, where he talked about this exactly, where it's like, you know, what the Fed was to the financial crisis, the military is going to have to be the sort of global commodity cri uh, crisis. But even before the sort of current acute tension, what is the sort of normal role hmm. that the U.S. military or the Navy plays in just sort of the securing of the uh, uh, of the global trade that I guess we all take for granted? Yeah, I think the key phrase there, Joe, is take for granted. Yeah. And, and we, all of us, uh, the global population, kind of just feels as though, oh, there's no problems mm -hmm. out there. And, and yet, as again, as recently as uh, within the decade, we saw organized, uh, strongly land-based pirate operations uh, coming out of Somalia. Um, we continue to see pretty vicious piracy in uh, the Straits of Malacca. We see it off the coast of West Africa. We see kind of hints of it in and around the Caribbean at times. Um, so piracy continues. Um, a second zone, and I always say the oceans in many ways are the world's largest crime scene. An another major challenge, and you know we tend to think of, of this as merchant ships, tankers, break bulk container ships, but how about the thousands and thousands and thousands of significant fishing craft that are out there. They are commercial and they are under assault frequently. A lot of the piracy is directed against them. And by the way, a lot of them are conducting illegal fishery activities. And some of that is state sponsored, by the way. So that's a long way of saying there are many problems out there. And that's before we get into illegal dumping and pollution. Again, that's commercial activity that's going on out there, albeit illegal. So all of the world's navies and coast guards are, are very focused on this and are working uh, very closely, um, both ashore with conferences and symposia and exchanging information and data sharing. Um, we share immense amounts of data from uh, U.S. maritime centers, for example, with commercial shipping uh, companies, and they reciprocate. Um, it's, a, it's a very close and positive relationship. Um, as, as we all know, the Coast Guard has a bit of a different role, more law enforcement. So, you know, they're going to have a uh, perhaps less of a warm and cozy relationship. Um, I think navies and commercial shipping um, are quite close and frankly have been um, back to the time of the ancient Greeks. So I know your expertise is on the shipping aspect for obvious reasons, but 
Is there anything that would need to be done on the land side in order mm. to get more grains to the port so that they could then be escorted and exported to the rest of the world? Um, great question, Tracy. Um, first, we need to ensure that we're efficiently moving containers and cargoes in and out of these ports. And, and let's face it, we have a bit of a double whammy here mm. in the sense that we're, we're still just coming off COVID in many places. We also are seeing very high inflation. It's impacting labor forces. We're facing a major strike at uh, Los Angeles, Long Beach, as we're recording this. And, and that's replicated around the world as longshoremen, for example, are looking at rising inflation. Right. They want to organize. They want to get more understandably uh, so they can keep up with inflation. So we have to have efficient, well-run ports that offer good compensation for the kind of quality work we need in those ports. Uh, number two, we need to make sure the ports are safe and secure. We worked very hard in the during the period after 9-11 to create much more security around ports globally, and a lot of that is still in place, not unlike the implementation of the TSA regime in all the airports. Um, we need to go back and relook at that security, I think, and make sure that it, it, it meets today's needs. And then third, we need uh, to ensure that uh, logistically, we can go from these ports quickly and efficiently into the nations that are receiving. So in the military context, we would say this is from port to fort. Those railheads, those trucking systems, whatever the means of cargo delivery is a whole secondary back office, if you will, where we, at least here in the United States, have some well-documented challenges as well. Like everything else in today's world, it's a big, complicated global supply chain and when a portion of it is distended, as it is now by the events in Ukraine, on top of post-COVID, let's, let's hope post-COVID, on top of staggeringly high inflation, it's a very difficult moment for global shipping, and it will have impact on, on the grain in particular. And that, I think, is, needs to be a key focus. Very minor aside question. Is the military dealing uh, also facing a labor shortage right now, like ever, like other uh, entities are? We are seeing some pressure on our recruiting, yes. And so for the first time in a long while, for example, the Army has extended the tours of its recruiters. Those are the men and women who, you know, are out in the field trying to convince high school seniors to come join the military. And um, the reason they're doing that is because they're facing pressure meeting their targets for all the reasons we've talked about. And by the way, as an aside, it's important to know, and this may surprise many people, you know, who tend to think, oh, well, you know, if I, if I can't go to college or I don't want to go to college, I guess I'll just join the military. Um, it's hard to be accepted as a volunteer in the U.S. military. Only about 25% of high school seniors are eligible for military service. Huh. You got to be a graduate. You got to have reasonably high grades. You've got to be in uh, essentially perfect health. You've got to have no drug use, no arrests.
As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Going back to the the challenge right now in Ukraine, demining the water around Odessa or demining any water sounds extre- sounds difficult. What does it take to do that and what is the time frame for just uh that part to make it uh safe to move at all. Right. So these are not uh, floating mines. In other words, these are not mines that are just drifting all around. That's a much harder problem. Okay. These are mines that are fixed to the bottom. And therefore, you don't have to take them all out. You just got to take out enough so that you can drive a tanker up a channel. So you got to demine the channels. Okay. And that's a finite space that you have to do. Now, could could Russia do some dirty tricks and throw some floating mines in there? Conceivable, particularly if they felt they could do it without us knowing it. But we're watching for that. I, I, they know we're watching for that. So let, let's take as an entering argument that you have to clear the channels. You have minesweepers, and there are several classes of these, but there are ships that are devoted to this task. And um, they're quite capable. They're uh, they have a very good sonar that can look into the water and find the mines. And then they have a remotely operated apparatus that can go and neutralize it. I don't want to go into more detail than that, but um, our capability in this regard is quite good. Um, we practice constantly to clear a channel from Odessa into clear waters of the Black Sea would be a matter of some weeks. It, it certainly wouldn't be months and months. Hmm. So one thing we've been talking about on Odd Lots for the past couple of years now are supply chains and logistics. And it feels like the pandemic has really thrown into very sharp relief just how much those matter and how much they are often taken for granted in the modern economy. And my understanding is that in military conflict, there has always been an emphasis on supply chains and logistics because those are the things that can win or lose you wars. Can you talk a little bit more just in general about the importance of supply chains to uh, military conflict? I can, Tracy. Um, An old saying in the military is that amateurs focus on the strategy. The professionals are looking at the logistics. (laughs) The, The business equivalent of that expression is execution eat strategy for lunch, hmm. meaning logistics, right? And, uh, you know, again, Odd Lots audience, um, that's what we all do for a living, moving through these global supply chains. And what we've discovered 
And our logisticians are the very best in the world, full stop military logisticians, but they've got a pretty controlled environment. And that sounds funny to say, right? Because they're, they're dealing with war, but they're also dealing from stockpiles. They have, hmm. um, a, they have endless training they constantly conduct. They have exquisite intelligence. Um, they can mitigate the combat risk quite effectively. The military logisticians do not have to face the big challenge that the global supply chains face, which is that it's kind of, it's all open source. It, it's, it's in many ways, it's market driven. It's not like these global shipping firms are getting together and training together and practicing together and are write a schedule that they're going to follow for the next 10 years, which the military can do that because it has control over all these inputs in a way that big shipping companies just don't have control over the inputs. And as a result of that, the kind of supply chain issues hurt badly because they they hit a system that had already moved so far to the just-in-time principle that it was very vulnerable to these kind of distortions. And again, first it's COVID, then it's the war, and then now it's this rampant inflation. All that is severely distending these global systems. It's going to require pretty significant rewiring, I think. Is there anything that private industry could learn from the military when it comes to managing supply chains? Well, I mentioned a couple of things. Um, One is training. Another is information sharing with each other and with the government. And of course, you know, they're in competition and that's hard. But, you know, look at the airlines on the issue of maintenance and safety. They constantly uh, work together and share information. Thirdly, and we talked about it already, work with the various governments, build those relationships. Uh, Fourthly, international organizations being part of shipping professional associations, which which many of these are a part of already, but also with the International Maritime Organization, for example, in London, be part of that kind of effort. Um, There's four or five ideas for you. Admiral James Devridis, this was a real treat to hear your perspective and the sort of like deep knowledge that you have in this. Thank you so much for coming on Odd Lots. It's my pleasure. And um, I'll just mention it one yeah. more time. A new book out, a maritime book that I think this audience would really like yeah. to risk it all. Nine Conflicts and the Crucible of Decision about making decisions. No under extreme pressure and real risk. I definitely want to read it now because just hearing you sort of like walk through the sort of, you know, the operation risk and the decision making and the difficulties, really fascinating. And I'm definitely going to check out the book. So thank you for coming out. You know, Tracy, just even beyond the acute crisis that we're facing with the war in Ukraine and the commodity shortage, in particular food, the role that the U.S. military or that military plays in normal times, just sort of keeping the global trade operations going, is definitely something that uh, we haven't discussed much. Oh, totally. So I I think when someone says, oh, we're going to have a military escort for a bunch of ships carrying grain out of Ukraine, 
I think a lot of people, their knee-jerk reaction is like, oh, this is a big you know, departure from what the military normally does. But actually, a lot of policing on the seas is done by the military. Like yeah. someone has to keep those trade routes safe. And typically it's the military. Yeah, no. And obviously, you know, as he mentioned, there's piracy or criminality or his line was that the oceans are the biggest crime scene in the world. So this is always going on. And now, of course, there's this acute issue of can we get grain out of Ukraine? Can the blockade be broken? Can it be broken in a way such that it doesn't dangerously escalate conflict? And I have to say, I still have some reservations about whether you could do that sure. without provoking a response from right. Russia. But, you know, I also appreciate the admiral's statement that, well, you know, they're the aggressor. So maybe right. we shouldn't worry so much about the response. They're the aggressor and it's in international waters and it's not necessarily an offensive operation to simply escort uh, a ship carrying grain. So it's an interesting idea. And of course, uh, as you know, he it's a it is a crisis, the global uh, food crisis. And it's been done before, or at least something analogous, such as the operation that he was part of in 1987. Yep. All right. Uh, shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest, Admiral James Stavridis. He's at Stavridis J. He's also the author of a new book, To Risk It All, Nine Conflicts in the Crucible of Decision. Follow our producer, Carmen Rodriguez, at Carmen Arman. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcasts, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.